When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Season 2 of The Lowdown with Brave Mama. It is bittersweet because it has been a phenomenal season of interviewing women on all aspects of what it is to be a woman. (laughs) We've got motherhood, we've got pregnancy, we've got postpartum, menopause, mental health, sexual health. We've really covered a whole gamut and invited people from around the globe. So we've really spoken to a diverse range of women on their experiences so that we are encompassing everyone. In today's episode, I actually don't want to give too much of an extended introduction to today's episode because I feel like you're going to get more out of it when you hear it from our guest. Now, I know she doesn't like to be referred as inspirational, but I have kept this episode to be the last episode of season two for a reason. That reason is after this conversation in particular, I felt the most inspired to take action and that's pretty big every single woman every single person who we have spoken to on this show inspires me I just feel very blessed that we were able to get her to come and talk to us as the brave mama community because I don't think I've ever met someone as brave as our guest today so let's get into our episode with Aminata Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Let me just paint a little picture for you. Yes. I was sitting at my local hairdresser in a little town and she had her beautiful magazines on the thing. And I never really read magazines. I mean, who has time as a (laughs) mum? But it was a Marie Claire magazine and I opened it up and I saw your beautiful face and the family and I started to read your story. Even as I'm saying it, I'm getting goosebumps. Mm. It was so compelling and phenomenal I said to my hairdresser, I need this mama on my show. And she looked at me like, like, look where we are in our little town and look where this mum is in this magazine. Like, yeah, good luck. And here we are. Here we are. Oh, my God. Wait, you should have probably, that's when you go, you, the mind for me goes like, well, she was in the most impossible place in Africa and she's in Australia. It's not that far at all. I think that's where always yes. my mind always goes to that end all the time when it comes to this conversation. Yes. Like it's not as far as we imagine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's start. There yeah. <laughs> because there, I feel like there's so many amazing things to your journey and story, but I want you to start where you feel most comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, where do I start? Mm. I'll start from my journey as a as a girl in Sierra Leone, West Africa, Freetown. That's where my life starts. I'm growing up with my incredible, incredible father, the best human being in the world who is not alive anymore. I like to start that place, especially in Australia, when African stories are so told in a different ways, you know, because for me, every time I speak to people and I said I was privileged, they got shocked because they're not used to a black person saying they were yeah. privileged. And privilege have such a name that it goes like people, white people go like, oh, I'm not privileged, I'm poor. But I grew up very extremely privileged. I grew up with a wonderful father, really good education, really good value, very disciplined, my dad. Humanity was the core of who he is. Respect for another human being was the core of who he is. So I grew up with the value of humanness. So, yes. um, and I grew up more, more importantly also with a father that will protect his children, but especially his daughters, 
Yes. In every breath, breath it can take. So I think I like to put that picture. It's important for us to put that picture there because those stories are not, they're not told in an African form. When you tell African stories, either poverty, animals, or something else. But that's my childhood. Yeah. So imagine having that and then your life being interrupted, turned upside down. And for me, the most significant part in my story is being taken in the hands of my father. And my kidnap part was, it, it, it didn't, because everybody was going through that. So it was not anything special about you. But okay. to grow up from a man, a human being that protects you that much, nothing could hurt me. I could say, I would say that nothing can touch me the way I grew up. And then all of a right. sudden, this big man at that time went so small. So small yeah. because I was kidnapped, taken in the hands of him, and he could not do anything. So for me, that's always the most painful part in my story, the most painful part. For your dad. For my dad, seeing him not able to protect me. But at the same time, growing up not learning to protect anyone, I had to protect him because in my book, Rising Heart, where I describe as soon as the rebel called me, looked at me, I let go of my dad's hand. I was protecting him because I knew what would happen to him if he would have fought for me. It's just, I knew because we've heard stories that girls will be raped in front of their family, the dad or the family, or they would, to train child soldiers, they would give the child the gun to shoot the parent. So I have, uh, so this story, because the war had been going on for over nine years, 10 years before he entered the capital city. So I knew that. So all of a sudden I felt this instant, I I don't know what it was called, but to protect him. So I let go. How old were you? I was barely 18 years old and I was holding his hand. And the reason why I was holding his hand, of course we were scared and we're in this big field that we thought we're going to be burned alive. And the reason why I was holding his hand because he had Parkinson. So his hand was shaking. Oh, you were looking up. So his hand was shaking. So I was, but I didn't know what Parkinson was either. He had Parkinson mm-hmm. and his hand was shaking. So I hold on to his hand to not shake. So then I had to let go. So that for me, despite everything that happened to me during the war, that is the most painful part of my story. Because I, I, that picture is always with me. And it was never the same. So then my life become more, for those several months, become more of surviving. It was the most intense time of the war. My first intimacy with a man, I was raped by seven more men. And that became my life as every other girl's that was kidnapped for those several months. That's when, that's when you were being held captive? Captive, yes. Captive. Mm-hmm. And because it was so intense, the war, we had foreign soldiers fighting the rebels and we were with the rebels. So the kidnapped, young girls and they look for young girls because they, they want the girls to be virgin or stuff because they wanted to use them as a sex slave but also as a human shield so that when the government is fighting with the rebels they will give the gun yes. to the civilians to how do you call it to stand in front of the to, yeah yeah to protect them to protect yeah. them then yeah. the government thinks that we are the rebels so we become the casualty so we are oh. yeah so so those were the scenarios and Okay. It, it, war, I, I, like even here today, I sit here and I hear about Ukraine or whatever is what happening, not just Ukraine. And people do not understand. You don't want to understand it because it is, yeah. I still, to this day, would think myself, I'm not here. Sometimes I'm like, am I really here? No, because it, it's body, not possible. Yeah. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. When you're in a war, it's not possible to survive. It's a miracle beyond explanation. Yeah. Okay. And... I can only imagine that watching that on the news right now could potentially be quite tricky. A lot, a lot trigger, a lot trigger, a lot. So after the months when you were held captive, obviously you are here now. So there was something that changed from being there to here. And what was that moment? For me, I think from the moment actually I was kidnapped um, because I went to Christian school. So I was just surrounded by so much viciousness and evil. The word of God, Bible, was the one thing that was so good, that was so pure that I could find joy in. So faith. my yeah. faith became such a, has always been in me, despite what is happening. I will always cast my faith. It doesn't matter how much bad situation is in it. 
I will find that good there, that goodness. And I think that I feel like that's what is missing for me. That's my transition to anything of life, anything. My faith, my belief where I can find beauty and make whatever ugliness is happen to find beauty in it. So that transition, it's really that. And my faith taught me straight away to forgive. I, I don't know what forgiveness is. And I, I don't know, for some reason, I felt this sense of forgiveness. It's not about the person, it's about me. But I didn't even have the language for it. But yeah, yeah. you were still so young. Yeah, but I, I could not understand. But then you know that it's happened to so many people. So what makes you so special? So I forgave. I just go like, I forgive. And then I started moving forward. And then as, so my life became lighter because of that forgiveness. And that's why I always say forgiveness is a selfish act for yourself. Because it was all about me. For some reason, I don't deliberately wanted to forget this man. But I was forgetting them. They didn't. They were not relevant, so they didn't have power. Yeah. So between that transition and coming to Australia, I had to come to a country where I don't know. I thought I was coming to Austria. Like, oh, did yeah, you? I thought I was going to Austria oh. because in where my visa was transit in Guinea Conakry, it's a French country. They call Australia Australia, and I'm like, I've never heard of Australian before. Not because of anything, because my dad was a businessman in Europe. In London, in America, every European so, country I know, yeah. but Australia, I was very, I'm like, hmm, what is this country? And I deliberately cho- chose Australia because I didn't know about it. So I had, I get, I was given choice to go to US, Canada, and the UK. And I've never, uh, and I didn't want people to know my story because when I was kidnapped, when my release happened, it was public. I was on the news. So I didn't want, oh. yes, I didn't want my community to know. So I chose this country deliberately. I'm like, I want to come here. And I remember the guy in the UN is like, but you don't know anybody. But that was my reason. I said, I remember thinking to myself, if I have to come to a place where somebody doesn't know my story and can be kind to me, just being kind, that's where I wanted to go. So this is how I end up here, <laughs> and which is a blessing, pure blessing. Um, it was the best decision that I made for that reason. And it turned out that way. It took a while. Now I'm telling my story. People know my story, but it took a while. And when I was ready also to tell it yes, in my own you, space. Yeah. Yeah. When you had already got those, those foundations yes. where people respected you yeah. for who you were mm. without a backstory. Yes. That makes sense. Yes. So you came here all by yourself? I came here, we came with a group. So we were the first refugee group to resettle in Australia through the UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugee. Uh, we were about, I think, 16, 17 or 20 family. So when I was coming, because my story was so public and my kidnapper was looking for me also. So the U, yes. So because he was extremely oh. obsessed with me. And so did you escape? No, I didn't escape. So I was part of an exchange. So when you see a movie happen and you see an exchange happen, that really happened in real life. It's not a movie. Like I got exchanged with some other group of people for medication and food. So our exchange bring even the peace resolution in Sierra Leone. So when when that exchange happened, I became public. But what had happened is my kidnapper did not release me. It was somebody that releases me. So when he came back to the camp, he realized that I was gone and he started looking for me. So when I've, even when after my release, he went to my house. Can you imagine this in Australia, your kidnapper looking for you going to your home? So this is how the, the, we, we were not really, the government could not really protect. He went to my home looking for me. And so because of that, I wanted to come where people did not know, even my community did not know I was that girl on television. And yeah, sure. so... Coming to Australia felt felt fitting. So I came with a community, but then I relocate in a place where there was not a lot of African. So all the Africans that we came from the Sierra Leone were in Bankstown, Lakemba, Punchbowl. So then I got moved. I was living in Pences. So I got more in the Shire area <laughs> where I was fortunate or anything. I was a black person, the only black person everywhere, the school everywhere. So <laughs> it was quite, it was quite special to me, but I didn't know I was unique. And then as, as time goes, really, I start really kind of settling in and start learning other bits of things. But my lifestyle became just from coming to Australia, but going to a place where you don't see people like me, you know? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. it was quite special. I, I call it special because I think I didn't know anything else. How my brain is so that kind of beautiful naiveness. So I was like, oh, I'm the only black. That's cool. You know? <laughs> I think you've just got this amazing innate kindness and forgiveness within you. Yeah. 
that I'm pretty sure you probably faced some pretty horrible things even when you got here because I've seen it happen. Oh, yeah. I did. I do. We're not oblivious, but you're still saying how privileged that was and how lucky you were. So it just really speaks to the type of person you are in your heart. Thank you. It's gorgeous. Thank you. Just gorgeous. So when you had been living here for a while and you had settled and then along came some love in your life. Yes. Let's talk about that. So after being in Australia for so many years, 2007, I met my, my now husband, Antoine. The reason why I like to tell this story, it's just because I think we we go through life and we go through things in life or every day and we make those things hold us back. When I met Anthony was actually somebody that I love, I love from church, my ex-boyfriend's birthday that we were very close. We were not together, but we have such a beautiful relationship. It was his birthday and from church group, they were like, oh, let's go for dinner together. I'm like, no, I'm not oh, going. Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not going to dinner. Like we're not seeing each other and we're going to be sitting there. Are we getting back together or not? And I'm one of, I don't like pity on myself. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. And then I took the train to go to Bondi. I like being by myself. I love my own company. So I went to Bondi, sat there by myself, and I got a train. And as I, get, as I got in the train, for some reason, it got to Circular Key, and I just get out. I was supposed to go to Beverly Hills because I used to live in Beverly Hills. And I, was, yes. and I, and I just got out. I'm like, oh, it's a beautiful day. It's February, you know? The sun is shining. And I got down and I went to Sakila Q and, and then sit there. And um, then all the way after three hours, I decided to leave. And I was, I was leaving down the opera bar. There was a music. I love music and I love oh, yeah. dancing. And yeah. some, a live band was playing and with a Franklin. And I stayed. That moment that I stayed less than two minutes and smiling his eyes, his eyes smiling like, I, I thought he wanted a photo. And then we get talking and we spent three hours together. And then we, yeah, that was 2007. And we... That was fate. It was That's fate. It was fate. fate, isn't How it? How can you get Into, more than that? I know. Yeah. And then we, yeah, we did it. And became friends did it. And then he went back to France because he's from France. And he was visiting the Oprah House for the first time. That's how we were. Yeah, <gasps> yeah. yeah. Worlds, worlds unite. Well, yes. And then um, he went back to France. We didn't see each other for five years. And we just were friends. And wow. yeah. And then 2011, we, we reconnect. Just online? Did you stay connected? We stay connected uh, as friends because I said this in my book. He was so captivated. Like he was like, I'm, I'm a year and a bit older or maybe two years older than him. So he was like, I could see that he was really in love and everything. I was like, oh, I just want to have a good time. <laughs> and he can go back. And so, yeah, so we stay connected like once every five, eight, eight, five months, six months, yeah. one year. And then what had happened is he, when he was staying with me for a couple of weeks, he had written a letter to tell me how he feel. And then he put the letter nicely and he put it in, a, in a, my drawer. Now, I did not see that letter for almost five years. What? Yes. And he went back to France. He went back to he went back to France and he would call me, we'll talk, but I was just in that friendly mood. And he called me and we we'll talk. And it was I was just like we're in and out, in and out. And so I, I I knew that he liked me. And it was only when we reconnect, when we connected, that he was gonna come visit me from France. And I and then we planned that I'll go visit him. So when I was talking to him on the phone, organizing my passport I, they let something i opened this thing and it was a map of africa i'm like who drew a map of africa and some flowers he drew this beautiful thing and he said it's been 20 it's on the book so you can see the actual yeah. letter is on the book rising up and i like oh. and i was like did you write to me a letter he's like yes i do i'm like <laughs> i'll call you back five years ago I believe that's faith also because I don't think I was ready. And I believe mm. I would maybe as a woman kind of thing, it was romantic. I would have said, yes, I'm ready. And it would have come. It would not have worked out. It would not have worked I love out. That. So that's, that's what happened with faith. That's a movie right there. <laughs> Just saying. I wanna, like, everyone wants to see that play yeah. out because it's so, so beautiful. Yeah. So a couple of years on and you decide to start a family. family. We, we got started a family right away. Like I was pregnant when I got out with, I always, for some reason, since I was a little girl, I never wanted a big wedding. So I always had this okay. vision I was going to get married when I'm pregnant. And then it happened oh. since I was a little girl. Oh. So yes, we, I was five and a half, six and a half months pregnant and we got married and two kids now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I think that's the part of the story that really resonated with me mm. as a mom. Yes. Is the, the birth of your, I, I believe it's your first child. Yes, Serafina. 
Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit because it's also been the catalyst for what you do now, yes. which we'll, we'll get to talk about. Yes. But when you birthed her, what happened for you in that delivery? So when I went to the hospital, Sarafina was mm, 10 days late. On, yeah. So when I got to the hospital, it was more to induce me and have the baby. And I was not really thinking, you know, when you're in the Western world, like nobody think anything is going to happen with your baby, especially in Australia. Yeah. The privilege ever. ever, like your baby shower and everything, the room is ready. You're coming with your baby, you know, and which is what should happen anywhere in the world. Yeah. And I remember they've induced me and they, they, it's gone like for hours and hours. I was in the room. My mom was there, my sister Antoine. And they, they, I would just pitch paint this room. We have like seven doctors in the room, seven. And everybody was just telling push, push, but nothing was happening. And then I remember one of the doctors, her name was, I will never forget her name. Amanda, she walked in, she was wearing a t-shirt and a jean. And she was just visiting on the Saturday, but she was the manager. She was just paying visit. Oh. Yes. And she walked in, she saw the position and I've had epidural. And now in my brain, I'm not a doctor. What I've, what I learned that when you have epidural, you can move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. I just know that epidural can take the pain and I'm good. Hallelujah. Yeah. Take the pain. I'm good. I was all smiling when they put it in, when I got it in. And then as I, so when she came, I, I just heard her say, she's talking about mm-hmm. me, but talking to the, the nurses and everyone. She goes, That's if crazy. only she can turn. So I was lying oh. this way. So she, yes. she, she was saying, if I could flip, if only she, but she's not saying that I should do it. Yes. She's not saying that I should do it. She only was trying to. Hypothetically. Yes. And when I heard that, I flip. Oh, I flipped. I turned because I didn't know. I didn't know. I just flipped to the positions that she said. And then she didn't have, by that time, she didn't have time to wear gloves. She went in and pulled my daughter. Yes. I know. No, I know. I know. That's a nervous shock. Like, I know. My my mom's face, my mom think I'm dying. So my mom's face was on the wall. She could not even look at me anymore. My sister's face. And my husband was not talking because it was such a bad position. No cesarean. It was not possible to go to cesarean. So what they're thinking, we want the mother to survive even if something goes wrong. So I could see the room. And when she came, she came with somebody else. You just like when you open the door and you saw something. Oh, she's been, like, maybe they said she's been in labor for a long time. And then I just, when she said that, I just flipped and she went in and pulled it. Because she pulled it so quickly, because it was really quick, Sarah, my daughter's hand got uh, the shoulder dislocated. Oh, she was up like that. Yeah. So the shoulder got broken severely and she came out and so much blood and everything. Everything from there, from there on, I just thought my daughter was golden precious so and then i got kept in the hospital for four days more than four days just to, they were doing case study and as i was talking about maternal health i'm like what is this word i don't even know what it is and and i just got curious and when i came home hmm. and sarafina by the way was perfect like she was sleeping they were checking okay. on her a lot because they thought she would be traumatized yes so that's what they kept her at the hospital and she was sleeping she was eating everything was just perfect and when i got home i started googling about this thing what they mentioned can i just ask did anyone was checking on you mama or was it just all no they were they were checking so what had happened is sarafina was five kilo so they didn't check the weight as much she was a baby that was just round and i was very petite and my pelvis is very small because i have a very small waist and they didn't check the they were not checking the weight. So I think even my nurse or whoever was in charge of me that whole process when I was pregnant, I think they went into something. There was, they had, I, I didn't, not that I didn't care. I had my baby healthy. I was fine, you know, yeah. but yeah. later on, I found out that things were really investigated. So they didn't check the weight. So she was too big for my pelvic. So they should have done a cesarean, which is one of some of the causes in, Af- in Africa, unnecessary causes. Because she, if they would have checked the way, they would have seen that it's, I was 10 days late, they would have known. And I, even, even being in labor, they, they would not have let me stay that long. But it was not on record. So that was the problem. Wow. 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 Yeah. I had a four kilo baby. And that was considered for a small pelvis mm. to be, yeah, same thing. You should have had a cesarean. You should have had a yeah. cesarean. When you were going through your birthing classes when you were still pregnant... 
did anyone ever talk to you about a cesarean or was it just no. the vaginal birth would happen? When it, I, I think the talk is what it gives people like, um, which is normal. Like you, you try and the second oh, okay. step is cesarean. So they were not saying anything. The classes I was doing, it was all fine. I think it was the, the, my checkup from the doctor that was doing it. And you know, when you're a mother, when you're, ho- when you're in hospital, you don't question doctors. Like Ever. you don't, they go like, that's what is happening. You go like, okay, you don't, you look yourself at what an idiot you are, you know? So everybody else, there's so many people that, that would have gone through that kind of exchange through in life and come out different circumstances worse, yeah. but it's very usual. People don't question that. They, they don't even, even some people go like, I'm feeling something. Doctors say, no, it's fine. You, you, you don't go see another okay. doctor. You know, we've had so many cases like that. So it was just that kind of space that I was in. Yes. And so when you got home, did she have to have any type of treatment for her shoulder? Oh, we saw physio at Westmead Hospital for the, for the first three years of her life. It was really damaged badly. Like we had to put clothes all the time. And we are, doctors were careful for it not to be too stiff. That It's a bit stiff at the moment still. Sometimes when I see it, I feel sad. But then I know how grateful I am to have her. So we have to do a lot of exercise. But this hand, it's like completely dead almost. It's like nothing. It was wow. floppy. Like, yeah, for the first two years of her life, she, she was not able to do tummy timing. There were so many things that she was not able to do as a child. Then I always make my, I always make a joke. My son was perfect and he didn't want to walk or do tummy timing. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay. That, that, yeah. But she, she just pushed through all the time. Did the hospital, was there any recourse for them in terms of what happened to you in that delivery room? I, I, I think they researched, they did some things. But you, you know, hospitals or places, like I'm an African girl who doesn't know even what had happened to her. I don't even have those questions. I don't have anybody to ask those questions for me. So what are they going to do? They're not going to, they're trying to uh, uh, get away. Get, well, I will not say get away with something, but they're trying to. So you don't question, you don't do any, nothing. Because now I've learned that you should not even be 10 days late when I'm learning that you should not be that long and my inducement got cancelled twice you know oh yeah so because we, one time we call uh they booked me I'm not kidding you my husband myself we're about to leave the door and they call they push it to three more days and I got so upset that we went to the hospital I said no I'm coming to the hospital to, mm-hmm. t- to see you I'm seven days yeah. late and this is what is and you know so as a person, what do you do? You don't know. When you don't know what is right for you, you don't even know. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know. You do put the full trust in them. Yes. And, and my baby was fine. So I'm like, thank, thank goodness. And hopefully that will not cause, me not knowing will not cause other person to go through that and have a different kind of result. But yes, that, that was just the position that I was in. I'm dumbfounded. Like mm. I'm really annoyed and su- and somewhat surprised as well that 10 days because, I mean, I guess that's a contentious issue because obstetricians, which you would probably know now as you're mm. doing your research, yeah. obstetricians will give you a couple of days, whereas yeah. sometimes midwives will say, let your body to go longer, go yeah. as long as you need. Yeah. There's no kind of cutoff. But what we do know is the baby only gets bigger. Yes. In time. In time. They do. They grow. Yeah. Until yeah. they stop growing because something is wrong. Well, but yeah. still, I think not having a looking glass or x-ray machine mm. to say, okay, now it's time. I'm just really sorry that they dismissed you when you went in after that seven days and yeah. they said three more days. Three more days. Yeah. That's never... Did they give you a reason why? I'm just they, they, I don't think... They, they felt like they know, you know? So that's that's what you do. You go to the hospital, you go to school. To It's like you go into school and challenge your teacher. Only when you get to uni, you can do that. But they, they just know. So, But I think for me, because it was 10 days later, I was like, it was getting late and late. And Serafina, because she was such a big baby, she didn't move too much. So sometimes I will move, I will shook my belly and then she will move. So you can see already now I get it that she, there was no space, you know, room to move. <laughs> That's right. So your experience in birth and then you went to have a little boy. Yes, um, crazy. How was that birth for you? Well, because of the experience that I've had, I think they knew that I would probably have big babies. So Matisse came about three, two or three weeks early. So I was due uh, put in for cesarean for sure. There was no way they wanted okay. me to go through natural birth. 
So Caesarean Matisse came through. Yeah. And that's so lovely that you got to have that. Yes. Have that stress and pressure. Yeah. And so when you became a mum, there was a time when you thought, I don't want these types of things to happen because in your homeland, mm. if that was to happen to women, they would probably they would, die, they, Not right? probably, they would die. I, I believe 110% I would have died. Sarafina would have died. And for me, I think what really, when I came with Sarafina, I remember, I will never forget this one time she's sleeping in a baby in a court. And I remember coming into the room and I look at Sarafina. I'm like, I, I truly felt like my contribution to society is done. Like if, if I can go today, if I'm, if I'm dead today, I'm the happiest woman. I've left part of me. And I really felt that love, that content. And what kicked in after I've learned all this horror, it was that in Sierra Leone, one at that time when I gave birth to Sarafina, one in eight women who died through childbirth. Now it's one to 17. And what kicked in for me was what I was feeling is what every mother's feel. Every mother. My child is the most important human being to me in the whole entire world. But she should not be more important than anybody else's child. Because I was in Australia, I was privileged to have over seven doctors in the room to make sure that I survive, she survive. In Sierra Leone, there are eight obstetrician or less than eight obstetrician in the country, which is a population of New South Wales. Eight in total? Eight. Eight obstetrician. It's the most dangerous place for any woman to give birth. Has the highest infant maternal mortality in the world compared to even people in the camp in camp, like the people who have been wow. camped for 20 years in, in Sudan and everything. Mm -hmm. So when, when you see that start, it just doesn't make sense to me when I'm in a country where I have so much. And we say this in our foundation, motherhood should mark a beginning and not the end. I love that. You know? I've read that over and over and over, and that is the most beautiful That is a, Yes. But what, what is even more for me more so that as I work in my spirit even this, this past three months is that if motherhood was marking an end, no one would be here. No one. If motherhood was marking an end, we all come out of a woman. Yeah. If we do not solve this issue, global disaster, climate change, all these things that we, if we don't start from life, from birth, everything that we're fighting for, we're just going to go back because we have said, just because you're born in Africa, just because you're born in Syria, and just because you're born in India, you don't choose your parents. You don't choose mm. what country. Well, just because of that, you can lose your family just like that. And I just, for me, that is the beginning of human rights. Life. We bring life. Can you just imagine? We birth. We bring life. We bring president. We bring anything that you can think that is higher. Yeah. We birth it. <laughs> Amen. Like, oh my God, like for yes. me, I just go like for me, that alone, it just blows my mind that we will let things like this happen when it's not a disease. This is no sickness. This is preventable. It's so unnecessary. How yes. we as a universe, when we in the West have expanded so much, how can we not help these women? to give them the tools to build their lives. How can we know? And do you know it's only when you say it like that, that simplified, mm -hmm. that I'm like, yes. Yeah. You, you like got up a fire and I'm like, oh my God, yes. How are we missing this? How are we allowing this as a mom now? How can I allow this to still happen? I mean, I'm on my own path to make sure my daughter doesn't end up with birth injuries like I did mm -hmm. to my pelvic yes. floor, yeah. but I am still here. Still I am here. still living a very fulfilling life yeah. with my child. So I am very blessed. Yeah. What you were doing goes to the very core of the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, just to, just to clarify, if there's only eight obstetricians, is midwifery care in Sierra Leone at all, or is it the only way you can birth a baby with an obstetrician? Midwife is the most, we have, the country need about, when I say this, I laugh, I choke, because the population of New South Wales, which is just over 8 million people, the country have less than less than 50% of midwife that they need. Because when okay. Ebola came, 
Ebola break the infrastructure of the health system. So there is not enough mid, there's not enough Trying. midwife. Yes. Yes. There, okay. So we have, so if they, if the country need about 3,800, we have about less than 500. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. So we have so less than 10% huge... to what we need. But also the issue is the quality of the midwives. That's what we don't have. Because of all, when, when Ebola happened, the people that suffered more, as anything, as war and everything, that died more was women and children because women are the caretaker. Of everyone else. So we lose about 10% of our doctors during the Ebola crisis. So it's a country that, are, that have gone through so much. You think about slavery, you think about 11 years of civil war, you think about Ebola, we, now we're in COVID, and then you go, how can this country get so much punch but it's the way that the country has been helped that has not been sustainable. That's the problem with a lot of African countries. The way the West is helping Africa is so not it, the right. It's not the right way. It's like you saying, for example, if you have a doctor in the US, when they come to Australia, they have to study back, get their degree all again, you know, to get the, mm-hmm. the quality. Yeah. In, in Sierra Leone, it's not that case at all. Uh, we have graduates that come to our clinic to come work. They've graduated and they've never delivered a baby, never, because of they, they don't have the training. So oh if I'm gosh. if I'm a midwife going to Sierra Leone, if I'm a pediatrician or obstetrician going to Sierra Leone, the best way to help the country, the people in the country, is to go and train the women the skills, not to go and do the work and disappear. That's how the West have yeah. always helped Africa. Let I'm me go. Let in. me build. A, yeah. Let me build a charity. Let me do all the nice work and let me come. And then they will throw events for me here and get awards. Take a photo. And yes. And then when they come here, they get all these awards. Like people get this. People are so spoken of so highly when they're here in the West. And you go like, I wonder what the women are, all these people are going through there. That's I'm so the, glad you put that's the yeah, that's the um, system that West has been accustomed to because they want to be the savior of Africa. They don't want mm-hmm. Africa to be a country that don't no, no longer need them. Yeah, right. Because if we do it well, then we don't, the African don't need, because they're able to do it themselves. But how do you raise money as a charity or anything? Because there's more problem, isn't it? It is. And I'm so glad you brought that to our attention because living here in this very privileged space, we don't know. Yeah. Or you only see this much on TV if you are not actively researching. Yeah. But my God, you've sparked a fire in me to find out more because yeah. I was like, how can that be? That's, it's, when you grow up privileged, like, well, that's just not right. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's just not right. And I get people all the time. I meet a lot of people. I've been donating to Africa all the time since I was little. And they're coming from a good place. But you should question why, the reason why you continue to donate, because they keep giving you more problem. And I, I say this now in when I give my speech, when I talk, because I have done what I've done with the organization. Um, I've worked my butt off. And I know if I was a man doing this job, they would have got paid. I know if it was a white woman doing this job, they would have been like, wow, you're incredible. You're doing this. Wow, you're helping Africa. I have done the same and even way, way more than they would ever do. And not, it's not anything to compare. But I don't get a resource because it's more attractive for a white person to help Africa than an African person helping Africa. And that's what we need to change. It's not necessary. It's a system that has been there. It's not anything like a bad... Well, it is the, const- the, the, the the structure itself in the system. It is horrible because it's not helping somebody like me that wants to help and giving back here. Yeah. Do it in a way because when I don't have resources, I can't do it. So if you Google yeah. any organization that works in Africa, it's going to be all the big organization, but you're not going to see anybody. I'm not saying from UK and Europe and in the US is different, changing. But in Australia, you Google, when I finish with you, which organization is working in Africa that is yeah. owned by a person and that's running it? I would like you to come up with any. It's incredibly, okay. I love what I do, but it's incredibly challenging because you're busy convincing people for something that they believe in. But you know when you get somebody that doesn't look like, that look like them, they, they're more to trust that person than me. And I think for me, that's what I'm focusing now in changing with the organization because I've done this. My daughter is turning 10 next month. 
I've done this for over 10 years and I've been speaking and sharing story for over 18 years. Yes. And I felt that pressure so much, but it's not as much as I have, I'm this fighting person and believing person, faithful person. You just go to a place, you go like, come on, people. Can't you see? Yeah. Yes. Where, where is the change? I'm here. I've been doing this. I've got it all here for you. Now yeah. take it on and do something with it. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. And come with the journey and let's do it together. Yes. But, and, yes. but all, when I get is you're so inspirational, you're motivating, you get this. And now I say to people, oh. I don't, I don't want to be your inspiration. I know I am inspirational. I know I'm an inspirational human being, not just because of what I'm doing, because of the person that I am. Yes. You believe I am inspirational. You support, you give me resource so we can change this. And the other day, a couple of weeks, two weeks ago, I was speaking at the event and I said this, to the guy, say, if I was speaking here, I've given, and you guys, the pin drop, everything, you're all focused. If I was a white woman, there's a different reaction. If I was an Australian woman helping Africa, and this man, two men came up to me and said, you're so right. He said, I laughed when you said it, but you were, he said it was so uncomfortable, but you're right. Because people would be clapping the white woman and saying, yeah. oh, you should be so proud because look, your place of privilege mm -hmm. is now helping yeah. people. Yeah, it's not helping people. There's a lot of people wow. like, like me want to do it, but it, they can't. They can, I had to go on Centrelink full-time. My husband said, you can't do this part-time. I went on Centrelink. I was not getting paid for years. I knew. Wow. But I know a lot of my community, they were like, how they still can't believe how I'm doing it. They're still in, in, because they can't. And I was in a privileged place also where I don't have the responsibility. A lot of them have back home to help their family. I don't have that. My dad laid a yeah. really good foundation. If I was, I would not dare do this. And which is sad because if this was the passion that you're born with, you're not going to do it because of resource. So. Oh, yeah. I, I know in a sense that everything that we do here at Brave Mama to help women through journey to motherhood and living with prolapse is a passion project. It is within my heart. Mm. At some point, though, you do still need to pay your bills. Yeah. Your own family. Yeah, yeah. on my own family. But also, I can't do it alone. It's a, it's a massive... You, we're talking about international organization. Let's only, Even if you do yeah. like a small blogging, it's already a lot when you do a blogging for like just blog sake and things. But you're running an international company. You're talking about government here, working with government because you have to align to everything. We've done all of that Taking and proudly say no mistakes, which is really rare. Yay. I have incredible people around me, but without the resource, it would not function. It would not function. Right. And I think that's where now my echo of voice, you don't need, I don't need to tell you the stats. You Google it, it comes up. Everything is in information. I don't need to convince you about the issue. I have yeah. the, the, the solution. Give me the research so we can do the solution together. Let's do it together because we can. The foundation that you set up, tell us, like, obviously tell us the name. I know what it is. <laughs> reading about this journey, but yes. for our listeners, tell us what it is and what it's aiming to do. And I guess share your solution yeah i'd love to hear that so um the foundation is called aminata maternal foundation and we work in sierra leone west africa where we provide and the best health care for mothers and baby we take the poorest of the poor the hospital is a private hospital that do not take any single money. And it is the wow. second busiest maternal hospital in the country, in the whole of the country. Yes. So we are very, very full on acting always. And we do not only do birth for when a woman, we do educational program because Sierra Leone have the highest teenage pregnancy in the world, highest teenage pregnancy. And once they're pregnant, they can't go back to school. So the hospital that we work with, oh. It provides all that. We provide antenatal, pre, pre uh, postnatal care. We, we go beyond that. So what we do, as I put that already in a picture, you can see, and, and you think of that anywhere you are in Australia, whether rural, you, you think in millions. We spend just around 1.5 million to run that whole hospital. And a baby, 3,000 babies are delivered every year. 3,000 3, babies. babies are delivered every oh year in that hospital. And we do it completely 
for free. But also the quality of service that we give is the standard of UK and Scotland. And then on top of that, which I think is the most powerful tools, is that 96% of our staff are Sierra Leonean. 96 amazing yeah so to run that and to continue to run that to make sure women can come into a very prestigious hospital where they know they do not take no money when i said we tolerate no kind of corruption a woman walked in and they fed at the same time you can't even do that in the west here when you go to see a hospital for checkup we feed them because so because they don't we want it to be uh, nourished when they have their baby. The baby so so we need the resource. We need funds to make it run. So for one person and a board to do what I do, I can even, I'm sure anybody on this will be listening and go like, that's impossible. How? Because it is really should be impossible and how. But with the support, with the resource, we can do way more than that. We can do so way more. So there's room to expand what you're There's doing room to expand. Already? We start working out in the rural area, which... A lot of the okay. stats are not count in the rural area, which is where the problem is. People, 70% of the road are really damaged. People can't come from the villages. So now part of our other project is start working in the rural area so that people can know in those small villages where young people are just dying, people are just, babies and mothers are just dying two days after, can be prevented. So we do outreach program, and it's where I really want to focus the foundation as now moving forward, work in the capital yeah. city, but the capital city have 70% of health system there, but people in the rural area can access it. So we want to be able to go there. So that's where the, found, the, the foundation is emerging while working in the city, but just focus there also. So I'm just trying to do that math in my head. So that's, just to clarify, that was $1.5 million a year to yeah. just have the hospital open. So, so the whole operation, yeah. everything to run it, yes. How do you fund something that massive and how can we get behind that with you? Like, can the listeners right now actually do something to contribute to that? Students are doing it. Primary school are doing it. I, I work with a lot of school. We can all do something. If your ability is to donate, like I could not urge that more. I could, like okay. we've worked so incredibly and beautifully hard for this not to push forward. We're just there now. A midwife salary, let me give you this picture. A midwife salary per month is $200 per month. Oh, okay. Yes, that's a midwife salary. Like if anybody there there's a midwife in Australia, just imagine that you're getting $200, yes. A month. A month. And it costs about one, it costs $150 for, for a woman, teenager to have a, a safe birth and to get into all the programs. So they're not coming just to have a baby and go. We teach them because they're teenagers. Some of them as young as 10, nine years old, their breasts are coming out for the first time. They do not know what is happening to their body. So they're not just coming to have a baby. They come in three, eh, twice or three times a week where we fed them and teach them about reproduction system, about their body, about what is happening, about where the baby is coming. And you can just see them dying when they hear where the baby is coming, you know? So oh, we give really? them, yes, yeah, so we have a training program where we train them to look after their baby. And most of them have been kicked out of their home. They sleep in the street. So we have another program. Yes, because they're pregnant, the family cannot afford another meal. So we have another program where we train them for them to either want to go to school or have a job. So it's way beyond. It's about really, when you think of empowerment, it's the core of what that's what we do. It's not just come have a baby safely and walk in and walk out. So, yeah. but to provide for us to be able to pay this midwife, the midwife are not pay well. They are not pay well. Mm -hmm. And the midwife knows. So if they've gone and studied, they're doing the job. If they go to another hospital, they work in there and they know that they're not being paid by the government. Guess what they do? They will leave that role and go sell a mango because they're getting. Yeah. So, so that's the problem. The whole system is the problem. So our, our hospital that we have, we partner with, we pay. So we get all our midwife from the, from the government. We pay them. Okay. So they continue to come to us because we're actually paying them and we work closely with the government because you cannot do development in any country and not work well with the government. We have the, the president visiting our, our hospital. We have Princess Anne open one of our hospitals um, just before Ebola and Princess Sophia 
was there just before Ebola happened. So it's a very well established, but we have yes. to keep it going and we have to keep it build more capacity for it to be run. 24, things like $24 a month, a cup of coffee that you buy. I'm not saying don't get your coffee. 20, $20. Your coffee, but yes. Yeah. $20 can take children. Coffee. Yeah, it can take children to the hospital. They will say, Four children, five dollars. You know the little things. I know they're not little, and I, I'm, I'm very aware. I live in one of the most expensive country in the world. But even when you don't have, you can give. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because I feel like we have grown up with so much privilege, with or without money. Just having healthcare systems and things mm -hmm. that you don't have to pay for are still privilege. Yes. Right. So yes, still grab your coffee and make yourself feel good. But imagine if you could share it. So even giving half of what you would spend on coffee to someone else knowing, just hearing this today, yeah. I was, my God, you want me to give action. action. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that's it. That's the plan. I said inspire and I don't empower because empowerment without responsibility is useless. It's exactly. completely, we need to hold, if I a girl in Australia who from Africa and come and have and having a baby here and see doctors in the room that does I'm also dyslexic even I can't even I have created something like this with nothing with zero money zero when I when people say to you and we hear a lot of big corporate I had zero I had completely zero with two children working in retail and quit that job. And we got to, I need the community. I need my Australian community. I'm a, I'm a yeah. African Australian woman here, but what I'm doing is not about African people. It's about people. It's about humanity. And yes. Babies. Yes, it is. So I need, I really, it's now I'm echoing that for the first time in my, in my journey of speaking, I need the Australian community to look beyond. She doesn't look, she's not a white person helping Africa. She's an African person. She's our African sister helping home and helping here too. And that support. She's got real solutions. Yes. Got real solutions with real intent. Yes. Yes. It's not to promote yourself. It's no. not to win an award. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know what, what the awards would do for me. If we just be here, I won an award last year. And I remember somebody said, what does this mean? I said, yeah, but if I'm not getting the same opportunity, it's just a glass. It doesn't do anything for me. Praise and, and exactly. critique, it doesn't do anything for me. But if I'm one woman that started this, imagine if we have thousands of women. Like, like can you just imagine? Not women, people even, because men came out of a woman. So I need everyone. You yes. know? I need everyone. So imagine if one person can be get to this stage, what can we do collectively? What can we do? Uh -huh. Like, if in that, if that doesn't even give you a picture, I don't think anything else will. And I want anyone who's listening to not have that effect of, oh, well, she's doing a great job. I'm sure lots of people are going to support her. So no. I think I'm okay. No, 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 no. If you are listening and you have today, your ears have pricked up and said, I need to find out more about that. I'm going to put a link to your website underneath so they can just click on it straight away. Yeah. And like you said, there is so much amazing information in there. That's yes. Super easy to read. Yes. Super easy to follow and understand. And I love how you've broken it up into sections. So if you wanted to support financially with this amount, this is the actual effect it's yes. going to have. Yes. If you want to give a little bit more, you will get to know it's going to impact this it's gonna, much yes, more. Yes, yes. We didn't quite get to the book, but let's talk about that now before we go. Because I said, I heard you say you're dyslexic. I'm like, but you wrote an amazing book. <laughs> <laughs> I am dyslexic. I am. I'm, and, I, and I think I'm one of those people when I found out I was dyslexic, I'm like, oh, good. Tell me what I'm good at. And then I find out what I'm good at. I'm like, oh, good. I'm, I'm, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I connect well with people. I'm very in that kind of space. I'm just not an academic. So I don't waste my time in academic. I have all the academic people around me. Uh, I always say to people, I have no desire to be a doctor, to be anything else apart from being a storyteller. But with my book, what I did with my book was my rising heart was I didn't want to write a refugee story. There's so many incredible okay. refugee stories out there. I wanted to write a story where people see themselves. Doesn't matter what part of the world you are. And I was really blessed and privileged to have company like Pan Macmillan and to have my ghostwriter capture that because every single person that I've read my book, they've looked at it and especially Australia because I have I still have the international and the film rights. So I've not sold okay. that yet. But Good. 
don't. Who who have bought my book? Australians, because they see something in it. They see themselves. And I wanted to bring that humanness in that. And people I would talk to that would write to me, they would, empathy was drawn to it. They would say to me, when you were kidnapped, when this was happening to you, this is where I was. This is what I was doing. I was on holiday. I was having my baby. If that's all you could say to me, you've seen, now you've seen me and I've seen you because that's what connects us all. It doesn't matter what had happened all around the world. And I wanted to capture that. I wanted it to be joyous. I wanted it to be fearless. I wanted it to be bravery. I wanted it to be tears. I wanted it to be raw. I I wanted to, when you talk about vulnerability, I wanted to be all in that mix in life because I, I love life. I love, I can't even imagine. It doesn't matter what things are happening with my life, how much I cannot appreciate life. I wanted people to feel that. So, that was the goal for me to write my book, not just a, a tip, your typical refugee book or African book. I wanted to see where anybody sees it. They see themselves and, and they look at it like, oh, I want to know her. Why do I? Yeah. 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 That's exactly what happened to me reading oh, that article <laughs> in the magazine straight away. I was yeah. like, this is amazing. It's something and it's you, you definitely tell it in a different way that it's also a story of hope. So yeah. you've just said it just then, and you can see it from the look in your eyes for those of it can't see, but starting from nothing, mm-hmm. you can do anything. You just yeah. have to believe yes. and take those steps, and yeah. you have done that. No. So we, I, can, we all can do it. <laughs> it's not anything special about me. We all, we all have it in us, everyone. Oh, but can I just say, there is so much special about you. Oh, that's too kind. There Thank really you. Is. <laughs> If you don't, I feel it. I just feel that there is so much to you and there's so many layers that is just mm. so amazing and beautiful. I am backing what you are doing, Mama, because let's... Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for reaching out. Let's think about our fellow mamas. Like you said, it's not an African issue. It's no. a mum-to-mum issue, Yeah, right? It's not. It's to say, I, if I can have that, why not another person? And that's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against... Feminism, all things, and all the yes. all the other things we're fighting, we're fighting for that has come from different part of the world. It's it's a miracle in itself. To when I go to Syria and I see women, I always stay up the maternal ward, and I'm running in and out, down upstairs all the time when the baby's coming out. I never get tired, and I'm like, how did I even have a baby? Because it's an experience that you go like over and over in her, like you see a woman fight to bring a life, a life. Like, what is much more? There's nothing. Like, honestly, what is what, what more? Like, I, I'm, I fight, I'm always fighting for everything else. I'm always, I'm, I, anything, disability, anything. But without life, that would not happen. Yeah. That would not happen. And it's what I, I, I hope and pray my, my voice moving forward echoes. Yes. You know, echoes. Because without your voice and without your life, there isn't going to be enough lives coming through Mm. so thank you so much thank you wonderful i really really appreciate thank you thank you so much what an amazing episode right now normally we would share our takeaways with you but i'm going to challenge you today to do something different i really want you to share your takeaways with me it can be kept private doesn't have to be made public But I'm just really interested to know if the level of inspired action that I felt after talking to Emanada resonated with you too. What was the one thing that stood out the most? Share it with me. Send it via email at stephanie at bravemama.com or on Instagram via a direct message because being able to continue these conversations is exactly what we're all about. Even though as we are wrapping up season two of the Lowdown with Brave Mama for now, it certainly doesn't mean that that's the end of our conversations. Basically, all it really means is that Steph needs to take a little break. And as we're leading into that Christmas and silly season, it's the perfect time to step away from the mic and be present with our family. Before we go, though, I do want to thank a few key people. I'd love to start with a special thanks to our podcast partners for season two. Modi Body and the Continents Foundation of Australia came together so that we can bring these amazing episodes to you every single week. We love everything that they do. It is not by chance that we partner with amazing companies and foundations like this. We are very selective 
and curate businesses and foundations that can also bring something to the table. Modi Body support us women with prolapse with incontinence and period options that are game changers. I love working with them. The Continence Foundation, as you would have heard, provides us free support for incontinence via their website, via their information brochures, and via a free hotline. Both of those partners are here for us, for us Brave Mama community. And that leads me to thanking the most important people of this podcast, and that is you. That is you listening right now. If this is just your first episode, then welcome to the journey. You are very important. If you have listened to this podcast for the entire two seasons, every single week, I just want to honor you. I want to give you that time right now and hold space for you to say thank you. You are so brave and so amazing beyond what you can probably even understand. Because by listening every single week, and taking in information, one day you're going to share that with someone that could potentially change their life. It's that big. So go you. I love having you here. I love having you here. And I think we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago that we will in fact be hosting a live event in 2023. And this is what taking a break from the podcast does. It allows us the space and the time to plan and prepare an amazing in-life event where all the brave mamas can come together and connect for real life. So that's what we're going to go and do now. We look like we will be coming back late January 2023. So it is a bit of an extended hiatus from the podcast, but that doesn't mean we are going away. You can contact us via email, stephanie at bravemama.com or you continually connect with us via social media because social media is not going anywhere. We're hanging out a lot on Instagram. So if you want to check in and see what things we're up to as a community, head over and follow us. I would also like to get in really early and wish everyone an amazing holiday season. However you choose to celebrate, I just want you to know that you are always connected in this space and we are always thinking of you. So until next time, bye for now. Brave, my-